First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby, and the baby carriage. Or so the old nursery rhyme goes. Since we're sitting at the feet of children, let them answer for us, how does true love happen? Nine-year-old Roger, the little philosopher, gave his opinion on love when he said, and I quote, falling in love is like an avalanche. You just got to run for your life. Nine-year-old Janet replied, no one is sure why love happens, but I heard it has something to do with how you smell. First comes love, then comes marriage, but how does one decide who to marry? Well, a group of kids were asked this question along with lots of other questions, and their answers are quite an art form. You may recognize some of their names. Let's continue to sit at the feet of children. How do you decide who to marry? You got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like, if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports. And she should keep the chips and dip coming. Alan, age 10. <laughs> I feel like his uh, father received constant eye rolls. Uh, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before. And you get to find out later who you're stuck with. Kristen, age 10. What is the right age to get married? 12. 12 seems, seems like old enough. Uh, Stafford, age 4. Uh, 29. 29 seems like a good enough age. Avery, age 8. Uh, no age is good enough to get married at. You've got to be a fool to get married. Freddie, age 6. Uh, how can a stranger tell if two people are married? Well, I watch how they talk, look, and walk with each other. I look to see if they're wearing wedding rings. Omari, age 13. You might have to guess based on whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. Derek, <laughs> age 8. What do you think your mom and dad have in common? Lori, age 8, said, both don't want to have any more kids. <laughs> what do most people do on a date? Talk, eat, hold hands, kiss, dress up, get ready, use a lot of breath mints. Junior, age 12. <laughs> uh, dates are for having fun, and people should use them to get to know each other. Even boys have something to say if you listen long enough. Lynette, age 8. Isn't she a treasure? <laughs> when is it okay to kiss someone? When they're rich. Pam, age 7. <laughs> the law says you have to be 18, so I wouldn't want to mess with that. Kurt, age 7. The rule goes like this. If you kiss someone, then you should marry them and have kids with them. It's the right thing to do. Howard, age 8. This is the type of kids we need in our, our subdivisions. Is it better to be single or married? Well, it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. <laughs> Anita, age nine. Bless you, child. And my favorite is, how would you make marriage work? Tell your wife she looks pretty. Even if she looks like a truck. <laughs> Ricky, age 10. A number of you are married. What do you need to execute marriage well? You want to have a healthy marriage, not a sick marriage. So how can you be married well? A number of you are, are single. If you're single, you're the majority in America for the first time in human history. You are outweighing those who are married. 
Not only is the U.S. now centered around single people, but the entire book of Ruth centers around single people. Three of them, in fact, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. How can you execute singleness well? This book has a lot to say about singleness, whether you're single, never married, single because of divorce, or single because of death. At this very moment, all of us are desperately in need of something. And it's not a good marriage. And it's not stopping me from interviewing your children about love and marriage. But by the way, I couldn't even use some of their answers because they were, they were, they were like little theological treaties. Things like where you don't kiss someone unless you have permission from all parties. We respect the Me Too movement. You, you, you don't date someone unless they walk with Jesus and the parents say it's okay and they honor the Imago Dei and they quote Charles Spurgeon. I mean, I felt like dropping the mic and retiring from the pastor right there. Like, I have succeeded. Look, you're not desperately in need of a date. You're not desperately in need of a good marriage. You're desperately in need of the gospel. It is your greatest need of the hour, whether you're a Christian or not. And now here's the flip side. You can't properly understand the gospel until you see it in light of a good marriage. And we just happen to have a good marriage before us. If you have your Bible, turn to Ruth. It comes after Judges in the English Bible, but after Proverbs in the best Hebrew manuscripts. And it's worth noting that the location in the Hebrew Bibles, because Proverbs begins in chapter 1 by describing a righteous wise man and ends in chapter 31 by describing a righteous wise woman. Ironically, Boaz pictures perfectly the wise man of chapter 1. He listens to his mother's instruction He's not greedy for unjust gain. He, he cares more about humans than profit. Remember, he said, drop bundles for Ruth. He treats people with dignity and respect. He told his field workers, do not harm Ruth. He spurns an evil lifestyle, although everyone around him is doing what is right in their own eyes. Ironically, Boaz pictures perfectly the wise man of Proverbs chapter 1. And interestingly, Ruth the Moabitess pictures perfectly the godly woman of Proverbs chapter 31. In fact, the very language used to describe the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, her works praise her in the gate, Proverbs 31, 31, is walked out in Ruth chapter 3, verse 11, where the townspeople are praising Ruth where? At the Bethlehem city gates. They even say that she's worthy, which is the same Hebrew word found in Proverbs 31. It's as if the compilers of the Hebrew Bible place Ruth directly after Proverbs to describe a marriage between a wise man and a virtuous woman. But you're probably not reading out of the Hebrew Bible today, so you can find Ruth after Judges, all right, in the English. Now, before I unpack the wedding between this Proverbs 31 man, this Proverbs 1 man, and this Proverbs 31 woman, I want to make it clear that this wedding is not in isolation. It's found in a long line of weddings throughout Scripture. If you're going to view this wedding properly, you cannot do it unless you see it in light of all the other weddings in the Bible. In fact, the first wedding is found in Genesis chapter 2. In a long line of creating things, God says after, he, after each creation, it is good. It is good. It is good. And then after creating Adam, he says it is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. God, the ultimate giver, the ultimate selfless one, created man not only to need him, but to need others. He created a dependence in man for woman. 
And the, the children's nursery rhyme still rings true. First comes love, then comes marriage. But it wasn't first human love. It was divine love. Before marriage, there was the love of God for man. You know how in weddings, the father brings the bride down the aisle to the groom? In this case, the father is God, and God is doing the honors, and he's bringing the wife to the husband. When Adam sees Eve, he literally explodes into art. It's the first piece of art in the history of the world. It's art in poem form. That's, that's the first wedding. But I, I want to show you at least two more weddings. I'm going to walk through Ruth's gospel wedding, and then I'm going to walk through history's last wedding. And then once I'm finished, I'm going to, as I typically do, give you some applications. I'm going to practically show you how Ruth's gospel wedding presses into your marriage, how Ruth's gospel wedding presses into your singleness, and how Ruth's gospel wedding presses into your dating life. Here's my thesis. You can't understand the storyline of the Bible unless you understand something about weddings. So there are two movements in our text. There's a Hebrew wedding and an interracial son. And then there's a global wedding for a universal son. Let's deal with first a Hebrew wedding and an interracial son. When Sarah and I were planning our wedding, we, she, she's sick today, by the way. She's not sick. The kids are sick. Uh, when, when Sarah and I started planning our wedding, we, we quickly found out that culture dictates much of what happens during and after the ceremony. So in my southern culture, which as we all know is the correct culture, um, weddings were quick. And, and after the weddings, there would be like little finger foods and a cake and, and especially in North Carolina, a keg out back. But the whole thing only lasted like an hour. In my wife's Canadian culture, the wedding started at 2 in the afternoon, and it did not end until 10 at night. And the meal after the wedding was, was five course. Uh, it was filled with tons of speeches. It was, it was madness. In the Canadian culture, you would sign the marriage license in the ceremony. This was so foreign to me, strange. I had never seen this before. We ended up having the wedding in the South, but we did everything the Canadians would do, so no keg. And, and let's fast forward here. We got married. We had a baby. I passed out in the hospital room. We had another baby. I passed out. I hit the ground again. We had another baby. No ultrasound on the third one because we wanted to be surprised when the, when the child came out. Now, I wanted to do a deep dive there because when we examine a Hebrew wedding, some cultural things may seem strange to you. Let me begin to paint this picture. Ruth is neck deep in wedding invitations. This is a very public event. The whole town of Bethlehem would come out for the marriage. She's already said yes to the dress. She's finalizing the wedding decor. Her maid of honor is Naomi, her mother-in-law. She's there, but in the background. You may picture, here comes the bride playing on the piano, and then the doors open and Ruth marching down in a white dress. All eyes on Ruth. However, even though the bride would adorn herself with jewels and, and beautiful clothing, the groom was the center of attention. Psalm 19.5 describes a wedding, and in it the psalmist focuses not on the bride, as most modern Westerners do, but on the bridegroom as being happy and radiant on the wedding day. 
You could say the doors open and he walks down the aisle in a white tux. In the middle of a Hebrew ceremony, Boaz and his family would give gifts to his bride. After the ceremony, they partied. Hebrew weddings, they, they got down. Lots of dancing, celebrate good times. Come on. The groom's uh, family would throw a sumptuous feast for the whole town. Both the bride and the groom had attendants to serve them. They were for a day royalty. And they didn't go to Florida on the honeymoon. Honeymoons are modern inventions. They went to Boaz's house. Notice verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went in to her. Now that's a polite way of saying that they consummated the marriage. It was a nervous night for, for them. Boaz was single, never married. So it was his first time, even though he was an older man. It's, for Ruth, it's been months since her husband passed, maybe, maybe a year. It's just been a long time. The town left them alone for this special night. It's the respectful thing to do. They're not like my dad who called me on our way to our hotel. This is the night of the wedding. And he's like, hey, son, how's it going? None of your business, dad. Why are you calling me? You, you better be having a heart attack. He's like, look, when I was packing the, the vehicle with the wedding gifts, I packed some shoes in there. Could you just leave them at the front desk? And I looked at Sarah and I'm like, we're going to laugh about this later. But, but we didn't laugh that night. It wasn't, it wasn't funny that night at all. Notice how verse 13 continues. And the Lord gave her conception. She conceived the first night. Now note the text says the Lord gave her conception, a reminder that God is the author of life. Now do not forget that Ruth has been married before, married to Naomi's son. They were married for 10 years without a child. No one knew if she could have children. That's why earlier in the chapter, the townspeople prayed that she would have a son, that she would have lots of them. And they prayed for that. Literally, the, their Hebrew prayer reads, I hope you drank the water that they're serving at Faith Family Church because all those ladies having babies over there. Notice verse 13. And she bore a son. In chapters 3 and 4, first comes love. Then in chapter 4, verse 13, comes marriage and the baby carriage. In 26 words or two sentences, we have a wedding, a honeymoon, a home being established, conception, nine months of expectancy, and the birth of a son. I mean, talk about fast forwarding. She gives birth, and it's a home birth. So there's a doula there. They didn't have ultrasound, so they didn't know if they were going to have a boy or a girl. On the night of the birth, Ruth screams, permeated the little village. No epidural for her. She's without pain meds. No epidural for Boaz either. He's staggered, but he doesn't hit the ground. Finally, the doula says, one last push. And with that last push and that last scream, into Bethlehem was born a new scream, a baby scream. The doula says, it's a boy. Ruth weeps with excitement as she hears the, the news. Boaz punches the air. I knew it would be a boy. Naomi is there, but the author doesn't mention her. She's in the background. The boy really doesn't look like his mother, nor is he identical to his father. He's a perfect blend. He's not Jewish or Moabitess. He's interracial. 
The doula weighs him seven pounds, seven ounces, bigger than they thought, but a perfect child. The town ladies are outside the house. They can't wait to get in and see the baby. They've knitted little hats and little socks for him. By the time they're allowed in, this little boy is now in the arms of his grandmother. Notice verse 14. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. So as these ladies formerly welcomed bitter Naomi back to Bethlehem in chapter 1, they now welcome her sweet heir into Bethlehem. Surround yourself with other Christians like this. Those who are quick to celebrate the kindness and the care of God with you. Notice what they say in verse 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Now, the, the Hebrew word old age here, it's literally gray hairs. He will be a nourisher of your gray hairs. The whole phrase means to feed your gray hairs. This baby will feed your gray hairs. Not cause the gray hairs. That's what children do. Grandchildren feed the gray hairs. Naomi was empty, but now she's fulfilled. She's full again, enjoying her grandson. She had empty hands, but now those hands are holding a baby. She has full hands. Her gray hairs are being fed with life, with youth. This widowed grandmother is now invigorated. Warren Rearsby commented on Naomi's joy in the text and, and writing as a proud grandparent himself, he wrote, and I quote, Grandchildren are better than the fountain of youth. For we get young again when the grandchildren come to visit. End quote. Someone wrote that children and their grandchildren are natural allies. This is truth. Davey pointed out that at Cracker Barrel, they, this restaurant, Southern restaurant, they have um, these grandmother paddles for spanking the grandchildren. It's a long stick and at the end there's a little soft cushion. And that's, that's about right. One medical doctor who authored a number of books on the subject of grandparenting wrote that the bond between a child and the grandparent is the least complicated form of human love. How many of you are grandparents? Did you raise your hand? I figured we have more here than, uh, than in the second service. Grandparents have the ability to impact their grandchildren in so many ways. Let me just suggest a few. A grandparent can teach their grandchildren the gospel. You've read after Timothy in the scriptures. Timothy learned just that from his mother and his grandmother. A, a grandparent can be a unique witness of the way that God has been faithful to their family over the years. This is God's desire. As revealed in a tangible way in Joshua chapter 4 with the memorial stones placed on the banks of the Jordan for a lesson to be taught to the generations to come of his miraculous power and providence. Grandparents set up memorials of God's past goodness. Son, he's been faithful to me when I was your age. He'll be faithful to you. A grandparent can be a safe place emotionally and spiritually and fill in the gaps that are left by the child's parents. Of all the books on parenting that hit the Christian bookshelves, where's the godly advice on Christian grandparenting? Some of you need to write it. 
So this fragile baby, he snuggles peacefully in gray-haired Naomi's arms. And verse 15 continues. The ladies are saying, For, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So seven is unique here. A family is everything in this culture. Seven sons speak of a perfect family. So she is complete. God has completed Naomi's family, filled her up. Verse 16, Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. So some scholars believe this is actually a formal adoption process that's going on. Some people say that Naomi, the grandmother, breastfed the child. I think all of that's reading too much into the text. Nurse could be rendered guardian or caregiver. Naomi simply cared for the baby. And it's interesting to me, I don't know if you've noticed, that now Ruth is hardly mentioned anywhere. There's a party, a bunch of gray-haired ladies. They're, they're talking, but who's holding the baby? Ruth can't get the baby back. Naomi's holding on to the baby. That's what grandmothers do. They just take the babies. They don't give the babies back. And the whole spotlight is not on Boaz or Ruth. The whole spotlight is on Naomi and the baby. Why? Verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. Now let's, let's stop right there. My wife would be like, wait a minute. Naomi didn't push out this baby with no epidural. I seem to remember pushing out this baby with no epidural. Naomi's husband wasn't the one passed out on the floor. I seem to remember that was my husband passed out on the floor. Naomi has been in the background, but now the author moves her to center stage. God moves her to center stage. This baby is bigger than they thought. It's bigger than Ruth. It's bigger than the times of the judges. It's, it's bigger than Bethlehem. Verse 17 they named him Obed. The neighborhood names him. Now, we would never have allowed this. We choose our, our kids' names. But the community sees the baby in Naomi's arms, and they see Naomi worshiping. They, they see how God's plan for Naomi's life had unfolded perfectly, and then they begin to worship. They see Boaz and Ruth holding each other in the corner, looking at Naomi hold the baby, and then they are worshiping. So they pick the name Obed, which means worshiping the Lord. And as the years passed, I'm sure his friends, Obed's little friends, shortened his name. They used to call him Obed, now they call him Obi. If they had more than one child named Obed, they'd call him Obi-Wan, Obi-2. And then look a little Obi in verse 17 as the verse continues. Obi was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is a pivotal part in the book. Naomi has become, bitter Naomi, empty-handed Naomi, has become the great-great-grandmother of King David. This book was written to explain the genealogy. You may think like, oh, the whole purpose of the book is the love story at the beginning. The whole book was written to, to explain the genealogy. How did we get David out of the period of the judges? So we've looked at two weddings. We looked at the, the first wedding. Uh, that, that was in the Garden of Eden. And, and, and then we looked at the gospel wedding in Ruth. Now, now I want us to look at history's last wedding. We go from a Hebrew wedding and an interracial son to a global wedding for a universal son. If this story were a movie and, and you were watching it, 
with your spouse. Here's what it would look like. The screen is about to go dark. You've got the grandmother holding the baby. Who could have imagined it ending this way? Wow. You look at one another feeling sentimental and then you look around to see like, okay, it's time to pick up our things and get out of here before everyone else does. And so you start picking up your things and you start heading out of Regal Cinemas when they start running the credits. But little clips begin to show while the credits are rolling. That's what's happening here. Stay for the little clips. Stay for the credits. We arrive here at the Hebrew phone book. Notice verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. See, in our day, we tell people who we are by our resume. This is what I've accomplished. But in this day, you didn't have a resume. You had a genealogy. This is why I'm important. This is why I have worth. So whatever happened to little Obi-Wan? Well, he was spliced into an important family. You say, yeah, King David. Now, the story doesn't end there. That's where the author of Ruth stops it. But the movie credits keep rolling in Matthew chapter 1. And it picks up with David. And it says that David was the father of Solomon. Matthew 1, 5, and 6. And then Solomon had a son who had a son who had a son who had a son. And about 25 pregnancies later, or to use the biblical term, 25 begots later, you see in verse 16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Turns out this little wedding saved Christmas. Jesus was born because of it. How many weddings can say that? No wedding in Ruth chapter 4, no Christ in Matthew chapter 1. Obi is in an important family. He did well for himself. In fact, his mother and grandmother were also spliced into the family. You, you tell me, who was Obi's mother? Ruth. Let's, let's say it all, all again. We'll say it together so you have more boldness this time. Who was Obi's mother? Ruth. Ruth. And then Obi's grandmother was, of course, Naomi. But who was his other grandmother? See, we've got the grandmother on Ruth's side, but what about on the father's side? Boaz's family is a bit of a mystery. We don't hear anything about them. What type of mother did Boaz have? We know she trained him well to treat ladies with dignity, to care for the outsiders, to care for the marginalized. He listened to his mother's instruction, echoing Proverbs 1. See, Boaz knew another woman besides Ruth who left her country, her heritage, and her idols to follow the God of Abraham. And it was his mother. Boaz's mother had followed after Israel, converting from idolatry to faith in the true and living God after the walls of Jericho fell before the Israelites. Later, a Jewish man by the name of Salmon married his, this, this woman, a foreign Gentile, and they're both listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. Boaz also knew that his father was willing to risk his good name by marrying a woman with a past. But more importantly, he married a woman then with a present devotion to God. Like father, like son. Boaz's dad was Salmon and his mother was Rahab. 
the Jericho harlot, an outsider, an outcast, a pole dancer, prostitute, now converted, now washed white as snow, now one of the mothers of Jesus Christ. How did she get in? How did Ruth get in? Well, the author actually hints at it. The author of Ruth has a favorite number. He loves the number 10. In verses 18 through 22, it contains an abbreviated 10-person genealogy. So that's 10. Uh, he, the author mentions that Ruth was infertile for 10 years in Moab. Uh, we know that the sins of the Moabites as a country were so bad that God had said in Deuteronomy 23.3 that no Moabite could ever enter the assembly of the Lord down to the 10th generation. So Ruth was a Moabite. How did Ruth get in? Interestingly enough, some scholars have calculated that Ruth was a member of the 11th generation. Maybe that's how she got in. I take the whole phrase, the 10th generation, to represent a sort of simile for permanently. Permanently, these Moabites can't come into the family of faith. They have no hope until a kinsman redeemer makes a way by a wedding to bring them in. How can Gentiles, prostitutes, outsiders, how can you get in? By a wedding to the kinsman redeemer. The salvation of the whole world comes from an interracial marriage. God is committed to radically pursuing all peoples. Boaz foreshadows Jesus Christ, the ultimate kinsman redeemer, who will redeem a bride for himself, which is the church. See, the Bible begins with a wedding. And at the end, in Revelation, it ends with a wedding. The great global wedding day on which we fall into the arms of the universal son is the only wedding day that will really make everything right in your life. And it awaits you if you put on the wedding ring of faith. The Bible begins with a wedding. And this wedding's original purpose was to fill the world with children of God. But it failed. Why? Because the husband in that marriage failed to step up and help his wife when she needed him. Don't eat the fruit. But at the end of time, there will be another wedding. The wedding supper of the Lamb. And its purpose is to fulfill the world with children of God. And it will succeed where the first marriage failed. And, and do you know why? Because the first husband failed, but the second husband will not. The true Adam, Jesus Christ, will never let his wife down. He hasn't. He won't. We've got a Hebrew wedding and an interracial son, a global wedding for a universal son. Now let me give you some applications. Application number one. Let Ruth's gospel wedding press into your singleness. Let Ruth's gospel wedding press into your singleness. Don't make an idol out of marriage. And you're making an idol out of marriage if you're chasing after it. One of the ways you can make an idol out of marriage is think that it's going to save you or fix you. Don't put more in earthly marriages than Jesus did. It is not your savior. Another way you can idolize marriage is chasing after the perfect person. I want marriage and but I, I want it to be like this and, and this person has to do this and this and, and he has to be this and he has to be that or she has to be this, she has to be this. 
You're looking for virtually the perfect spousal prospects, but there aren't any. And you're not a perfect spousal prospect. There's only one perfect person who works with two imperfect people to reflect his glory. See, traditional societies believe you're nobody unless you're somebody's spouse. But our faith was started by a single man. Another one of the the great missionaries in Christianity, St. Paul, said something interesting in 2 Corinthians. He says, you want to be married? Great! You don't want to be married? Great! And that was unique in antiquity. Because in ancient times and in traditional cultures, you're nobody unless you're married. And Christianity comes on the scene and says the only thing you absolutely need is Jesus Christ. Let Ruth's gospel wedding press into your singleness. Application number two. Let Ruth's gospel wedding press into your dating life. Singleness is better than sinfulness. It's better to be alone with the Lord than with someone who isn't the Lord's choice for you. Stop thinking you're incomplete because you're not married. Marriage is not what completes you. Jesus is what completes you. So let let me just give you some pointers from this book on, on dating. Here's the first one. A permanent attraction between a man and a woman goes beyond the physical dimension and involves the spiritual dimension. It goes beyond the physical dimension and involves the spiritual dimension. Each society has its own standards of beauty. We we can't be stuck in the U.S. Each society has its own standards of beauty. Some cultures stress that beautiful women must be heavy, while others applaud thinness. And it's difficult for us to know what the ancient Hebrews considers to be beautiful. But it is clear that Boaz wasn't first attracted to Ruth's shape. She She was a farmer that day when he met her. Her shape was covered by her clothes. She was wearing mourning clothes. You want to marry a shape? I've just got news for you. Shapes change for men and women. They change. Nowhere in the book of Ruth are we told what she looked like. There's not one physical description of Ruth given. The Proverbs 31 woman, same. So ladies, don't, don't make yourself seductive. You spend time in the word and make yourself holy and a man will be drawn to that holiness. Let me just give some practical words to those of you that, ladies that are young and single. If a a man demands your body before he declares his vows, his name isn't worth taking. In simple terms, throw him back and keep fishing. Let me be just as pointed with men. If a woman uses her body to manipulate your heart, you have no reason to trust her heart. Now, this one's just for kids because Disney is telling all kids they need to be dating at age four. Um, When I interviewed some of the kids, I loved it because most, and it says a lot about their homes. Nearly all of them said the most important thing when you're looking for a spouse is to find out if that person is a Christian. And I thought, I wish everyone had that insult. I wish many of the adults in our church had, had that insight. If you're dating someone who isn't a follower of Christ, the best advice I know how to give is go home, sit down on the bed, put your tennis shoes on, tie them up tightly, and run. 
Run. So, some of you, now some of you, you're, you're going to push back and be like, uh-uh, Kyle, no, no. I, I married an unbeliever and I knew he was, he was not a believer or she was not a believer before I got into the marriage and then, and then they came to Christ. I've invented this whole thing called dating evangelism. Look, look, it, that may be true for you, but that is the exception. That is the exception. Now let me jump back to adults. Here's, here's another principle. You don't have to be a perfect match to get married. You don't. The search for Mr. Right and Miss Right is not a search for someone like you, all things in common. It's in search for someone who wants to be like Christ. One author nailed it. I couldn't have said it any differently, so I just copied and pasted his paragraph. All right, Here's what he said. By the way, no one would have ever matched them. Boaz and Ruth were terribly incompatible as far as the world goes. They had different family backgrounds with different family traditions. They were geographically worlds apart. One had grown up a follower of God. The other had grown up in idolatry in a pagan religion. One was rich. The other was poor. One was a business owner. The other was a migrant worker. One was single. The other had, had uh, been married. One had not experienced... One had been married and experienced the death of a spouse. On the other hand, one was a mature believer and the other was a new believer. One was financially independent. The other lived hand to mouth. The list could go on and on and on. Some of you feel like, Kyle, I've already, I've already, I've already messed this thing up. Like you, you know, where, where is that Bible verse? First comes marriage, then comes marriage. It's not a Bible verse. But the principle is true. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby and the baby carriage. If you didn't do it that way, there's grace. Repent and move forward in grace. And don't look back at your sins because God doesn't. Application number three. Let Ruth's gospel wedding press into your marriage. Let Ruth's gospel wedding press into your marriage. Marriage is real life with two sinners. And it's not easy. And all married people said, amen. What, what if your dream was actually your worst nightmare? So what if the thing you're, you're, you're working toward, like this perfect marriage, what if I just wanted to be this way, this, this perfect way? What if your dream was, was your worst nightmare? And he, here's what I mean by that. You want a good marriage, but what if that good marriage would take you away from Jesus? John Newton, whom you probably know as a hymn writer, he wrote the song Amazing Grace, but he was actually a great pastor in 18th century Britain. He was right when he said, and he would say this to newlyweds all the time, I and I quote, you may think your biggest problem, spiritually speaking, is the prospect of a bad marriage. Every bit as big a spiritual danger is the prospect of a good marriage. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. There is or can be something so powerful about marriage, so fulfilling about marriage, that unless you deliberately stop it, this is what's going to happen. You will look to your spouse to give you things that only God can really give you. And then that will be a disaster. You will crush your marriage with those expectations. Because nobody can bear the weight of the expectation and hopes of ultimate joy. Some of you are doing it right now to your spouse. You, you can't ever settle for anything other than this incredible picture you have in your mind of absolute blissful love. And you have to have it. 
Because you're looking to it to give you what only God can give you. So when you're not able to actually handle mediocrity in marriage, you get all bent out of shape about the imperfections of your spouse. And could it be the whole time your marriage has become an idol, looking for it to give you what only Jesus can? Some of you, you need this reminder today. There is hope for second marriages. This is not Ruth's first husband. Her second marriage is more loving than her first, more godly than her first. And I'm not going to get into the whole issue of divorce and remarriage. I've dealt with that from the text plenty of times. But I will say this. If this is your second marriage or third or eighth, there is hope for you. Why did God come to earth in the form of Jesus Christ? Why did God come to earth... Why did Jesus, why did he come to earth? John 1 says he came to his own, but his own received him not. He was trying to get us back. He was trying to win back his wayward bride. But we didn't spurn him. We nailed him to the cross. And some of you may be in bad marriages now and you think, oh, my spouse is just crucifying me. But in God's case, it really happened. When he was on the cross looking down, realizing what it would take for him to stay and love us to the end. Guess what he did? He stayed. He stayed. So, here, this is ultimate spousal love. Here's the man, here's the spouse who has no illusions. He doesn't expect us to be perfect. He knows we're not perfect. He's loving us not because we're lovely, but because we're going... Or because we're going to give him so much affection. He loves us to make us lovely. And the main thing you, you really need to stick with in your marriage is, is you, need, you need over and over again to look at your spouse and say, You have wronged me. But I have wronged my great spouse, Jesus Christ. And he kept covering me and forgiving me so I'm loved enough by him that I can offer the same to you. After weddings, in nearly every culture, there was some sort of meal. And today, we go to a meal. We go to the Lord's table. Let me talk to you first, non-Christians. They say, Kyle, I'm not a Christian. What's going on here? What do you got under those sheets? I've been wondering. The whole, the whole service got me a little freaked out. If, if you're not a follower of Christ, I'm going to ask that you do not take the bread and the cup. But take Christ instead. As others around you are receiving the bread and the juice into their bodies, may you receive Christ into your soul. And tell us about it so we can get you ready to receive the table the next time. This table can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. Just like a marriage can't save you. Only Jesus can. You can have a horrible marriage and still be a happy Christian. Because what you need for happiness and joy and contentment and peace is Jesus. So if you're a non-Christian, don't, don't lie to yourself and take the meal when you've already spurned the invitation for salvation. Let me talk to Christians. Every wedding meal is in community. Bethlehem, it was the, it was the whole community. Take this meal in community with other believers. 
fellow believers. Understand that this is a wedding meal. It's a table of grace, not merit. We're here because of His blood, not ours. We're resting on His perfect performance, not yours. Understand that this wedding meal is a look into the future. This is just an appetizer. It's a dress rehearsal for a wedding feast that we will have in heaven. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.